Hey everybody, welcome back to the Why in the World podcast. Um, my name is Brian Nixon. I am a psychotherapist and the founder of Mindful Counseling GR in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And normally on this podcast, I'm the one doing the interviews, but this one's a little bit different. I was recently interviewed for uh, the podcast called Humanity's Values, which is by licensed mental health therapist David Teachout. David is a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Washington and the founder of Life Weavings, which is his counseling and coaching practice. Um, and in this episode, we had a really great conversation about um, really sort of therapy in general, but we kind of dive into my personal struggles and development as a therapist. We talk about several different therapeutic philosophies and discuss the nature of the client-therapist relationship as the primary agent for change and why therapy works. Um, we talk about the importance of therapists to remain committed to their own personal and professional development um, and, you know, several other things. It's a really interesting conversation um, and we decided to post it both on the Humanities Values podcast and then here on Why in the World also. So this is actually a repost of that conversation. Um, again, thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to Why in the World, a podcast fueled by curiosity with deep dive conversations exploring meaning, purpose, and why we show up in the world the way we do. I'm your host, psychotherapist Brian Nixon. All right, today I'm going to be chatting with Brian Nixon. Uh, Brian Nixon is a therapist and clinical supervisor uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, in his uh, therapy business, Mindful Counseling GR. Uh, welcome, Brian. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the state of the profession, uh, at least from our you know perspectives, uh, how we got into therapy and why we're still in it. Um, so, uh, Brian, uh, welcome again, and uh, feel free to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, pl pleasure to be on. Um, thanks for thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, yeah, so a little about me. As you mentioned, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was born and raised here. Um, traveled around a bit, did some, did my undergrad college in Virginia. And then my master's work was actually out where you are, out in Seattle. Um, I went to the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Um, that was, I graduated in 2007 from that and met my wife, Angela, out in Seattle. She was also in the program. Um, and so we joke that our, it was probably our pathologies that drew us together. Uh, so, <laughs> nice. you know, as, uh, as psychology nerds would joke. So, um, yeah, we got married out in Seattle and then she finished up her master's program about a year after I did. And then we moved to Asheville, North Carolina. Um, her folks are down in Louisiana and my, my family and community are in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so we kind of found a spot halfway between the two um, and landed in Asheville. It kind of Googled Seattle of the South and that's what popped up. So moved there sight unseen and had a, about two and a half, just under three years uh, of life there. 
and loved it. Loved being in the mountains of Western North Carolina and um, just a beautiful place to, to live. Um, but then we had our first daughter and quickly realized we probably needed more support uh, in our life. Just, uh, you know, kind of the overwhelm of being first time parents and all that sort of stuff. And so when our daughter was three months old, we packed up and moved back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we've been ever since. So that's kind of the bird's eye view of, of the trajectory of the last maybe 15 years or something. Um, and in that time, you know, like I, I don't know, like I fell in love with basically a, a relational psychodynamic approach to therapy, which is how we were trained in Seattle. Um, and was really drawn to, to the depths of that kind of work, um, beyond just more of a cognitive behavioral model. Um, I was far more curious about like what's underneath the thoughts and the behaviors and, um, how is that driving us, you know, and that involves like, what's our story? What, have, how have we lived and shown up in the world and, um, learned to adapt early on in ways that are now largely unconscious, but still directing our path, if you will. Um, and so I, I've always had a curiosity about the depths of what it means to be human, I think is probably a good way to say it. Um, and a curiosity about myself in that same way. Like, why do I show up in the world the way I do? What are the reasons I tend to, to do the things I do? Um, and so have simultaneously been pretty deeply committed to my own journey, my own sort of unfolding as a human and healing and, and that sort of thing, which I've you know, found to be one of the more important pieces of being a therapist is that willingness to do our own work, um, be in the other chair, if you will. Um, it was kind of drilled into our heads in grad school that you, you'll never be able to take people to places you haven't been willing to go yourself. Um, and I something like about that. that just, yeah, it felt really true and important. And so um, I guess that's a little background on how I, how I view the work. Um, my actual career path has been kind of winding and various uh, in a lot of ways. When I was in grad school, you know, living in, Star or in uh, Seattle for the first time, I was like, well, what's the most cliche job? And so I should probably work at Starbucks. And so <laughs> did, did that for like my first year in grad school, um, did the barista thing and shortly Oh, well, I was about nine months of that actually. And then I um, got a job at Fairfax hospital in Kirkland, Washington, which is a psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. And so during the rest of my time in grad school, I was working in, in that context in various roles. Um, did a initially was working on the units sort of like um, I'm trying to remember what the position was called. Uh, I can't even remember now, but, um, it was basically working on the units with the patients, leading some groups, uh, doing rounds, making sure people were safe and, and that kind of thing. Um, and just hanging out with, with humans who are in some version of their own suffering. Um, and you know, just, it was a huge education for me to be able to be in that context, uh, in that capacity and learn from, the, the, the psychiatric nurses who were, who were there, who had on, some of them been there for 20 plus years and uh, have a lot of experience in that context. And then learning from the, the psychiatrists and sort of really seeing the medical side of psychology, um, which I've never been particularly drawn to. Like I'm, 
but I, I felt was important for me to see and learn and, and get an experience of. Um, and then I was a case manager and discharge planner at the hospital for a while. Um, prior to that, actually, I, I was uh, court transport. So there were patients who would come into the hospital involuntarily, meaning they were detained for being either a danger to themselves or somebody else. And, um, and when you're involuntarily in the hospital, there's like a 72 hour hold before legally they have to have a court hearing um, to determine whether or not they will stay in the hospital or not. And um, so for a while, I was actually transporting patients from the hospital to the, where the court was and to be able to sit in and hear these hearings and hear the, the arguments for and against keeping people in the hospital in their various situations. And so that was a really interesting experience, but wasn't all that life-giving for me. Um, found it to be kind of uh, draining after a while. There was, um, it was just, it was hard work. Um, and honestly, like I said, I, I'm more drawn to the depths of the work, you know, like the idea of even the etymology of the word psychotherapy literally means a healing of the soul. Um, and so that's what I've been most drawn to is like, what does that even mean? How do we engage the depths of what it means to be human at a soul level? And so I always had that like nudging of like, I, that's the work I want to do and I'm not doing it. Um, and in my mind, I had that sort of envisioned as being in more of a private practice setting and working with clients who were coming in and um, wanting to explore their own story, their own woundings um, and experience, you know, some form of healing and integration of, of the different parts of who they are so that their, their life can be more full and fulfilling and, and expansive in some ways. Um, so that, that longing has always been in me and it took a while for me to get into actually doing that sort of work. Like even when we moved to Asheville, I was doing more community mental health and uh, was part of what was called an assertive community treatment team, which is a program that was developed to um, go basically into the community to people's homes and uh, who would normally maybe be high utilizers of the hospital to try to give them like more of a wraparound service to make sure that um, they had the support they needed. So maybe they wouldn't need to go into the hospital as often. Um, which again was an interesting experience. I, I loved getting to meet the people that I got to meet and it was, you know, in my car, most of the time driving around the mountains of Western North Carolina to in going into people's homes and seeing how they live, which, you know, just kind of gave me another perspective of, you know, people's lives, are the way they are for so many reasons and there's a context to it. And, uh, and so I think it was valuable in that way to not just sit in my office and have people come to me with no imagination for what life might look like outside of my office. And uh, so it kind of expanded my own perspective in some ways, but again, I was mostly doing case management. I wasn't really doing a lot of psychotherapy. And um, so then fast forward to moving to Grand Rapids and I interviewed at a, at a, an agency in Grand Rapids that was more uh, what I guess traditional, what you'd think of as a psychotherapy practice. Um, so I had a designated office and clients who were regular coming weekly and sitting down with me in my office. And 
so I, I kind of was like, oh, I've, I've made it finally. Like, this is, this is what I wanted to do. Uh, and then something really strange happened. Like, and maybe this, maybe it's not strange. You know, I guess actually in talking with more and more younger clinicians, I've realized it's actually probably pretty normal. But to me, it felt very strange. And, and what happened was um, about a year or, you know, a year to two years into the work, I just was having so much self-doubt and anxiety of like, what the hell am I even doing? Uh, you know, I don't know that I would pay somebody to do what I just did. And um, so kind of really disorienting because I had this sort of ideal image in my mind of what the work was going to be like when I was finally, you know, doing psychotherapy rather than case management. And to some extent that was true, like something felt more aligned and congruent for me. Um, but then there was all this, like, you know, my ideals being confronted with real humans. Uh, it was like, I don't know. I don't know what, what's actually happening and why people keep coming back. And, and I don't know this real feeling of like, I'm trained, but I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and so I reached out to a former professor of mine, uh, who was also one of my early supervisors and he's a psychologist and had been practicing for at this time, probably like 25 years. And I just said to him, I was like, Kirk, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And then I told him what was happening. And he just, he kind of chuckled a little bit and he's like, Oh, he's like, yeah, that's, that's really normal. Actually. He said, I've been doing this work for 25 years and, and I often still don't know what I'm doing. And uh, so he kind of normalized it, but then he said something that really stuck with me of like, and I think that's the way it's supposed to be because mm. there's a real mystery in what it means to be human. And if we come in and we just think we know exactly what's happening and how to fix it, then we're kind of objectifying our clients. We're making them a project that we're working on rather than a human that we're encountering. And, and so he said, just keep, keep going, keep doing it. Like your, your clients are your teachers now. And, um, and that's, that's remained true to this day. Like that's sort of my perspective of like, I don't know what, what's going to happen as we encounter one another on these, this, these depths of what it means to be human. Um, but something unfolds over time, you know, therapy to me now is much more of what will unfold in this space between us as, as we try to connect and as all of our clients, old patterns and, unconscious processes show up in the room with my own past and unconscious processes and something third forms in the space between us and something in that middle space of the relationship is a repetition of the past. Um, and, and so, you know, I stuck with it and, you know, here I am now and, um, I, the work has never felt more alive and more vibrant to me. And I would say, Kirk was right. Like I still often don't know what's happening, but, but what's different is like, I, I have more of a tolerance or a capacity for the unknown um, and allowing it to unfold. And so, yeah, uh, I, yeah, that's a lot. So I'll pause there for a second, I guess, and see what thoughts you have. No, thank you. Uh, sorry. It's, you know, this is, I think the third, maybe the fourth time we've chatted a bit, just kind of leading up to this and every time um i just sit back and go wow okay we're we're gonna keep talking um <laughs> because <laughs> um there's just so much frankly honesty um 
around how you approach, you know, the profession and yourself in your own journey in it. And, you know, I was struck by so many things actually that you just mentioned. Um, we're probably not going to be able to get to all of them, uh, just in this one. So hopefully we'll, we'll definitely do this again. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess that one piece around how you look at the therapeutic process itself, you know, that, um, let's see if I can, you know, kind of paraphrase here a bit of how the, you know, two people in a room coming together and creating something together that you are creating the space, holding the space for, um, the exploration and hopefully growth of, uh, working through things that have occurred before, how one relates to, you know, those things, uh, in the past and in the present, um, and perhaps even how, you know, they want to look at those things and how they want, you know, those things to be influencing themselves into, you know, their hoped for futures. And, in the mutuality of that process, we're in the sense that you're bringing your own history, your own um, variabilities of life experience, um, mm -hmm. and into the same space. And then together, it's like, oh, so alone, we only had one window into a future. Together, we're creating an entire, uh, you know, cathedral of windows mm -hmm. to see, you know, multiple ways of, of, of kind of working forward into this. Um, and I was just really struck by the humility that it takes, you know, the psychology often gets looked at as a so-called soft science. And mm. while I don't, you know, really like, uh, the kind of <laughs> the separation of so-called soft and hard sciences, there is something to be said about therapy in particular that requires because we're working in the depths of humanity that uh, it requires us to be um, very tentative um, not delve into we know exactly what's going on um, mm -hmm. to really not go that path and instead kind of always sit in the um, you know the kind of pregnant pauses, you know, of, like, what are we going to be birthing going forward? What is, uh, you know, uh, going to emerge out of, you know, this collaboration um, and not having an idea of what that might look like, or if we do being extremely open to being wrong uh, about yeah. how that then, you know, comes Absolutely. up. So, you know, what do you think, you know, in that, in that whole process over the last multiple years, um, what do you see as some of the you know biggest struggles of trying to uh, you know pursue that or see that mm. you know come about? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I, I you know honestly, I think there's a a lot of potential struggles with it. You know, there's a level of vulnerability required of the therapist to surrender to a process and to an unfolding that we're not in control of that we're 
you know, we can't fully be certain of what's going to unfold because, you know, as the old saying, like the problem with the unconscious is that it's unconscious. And so it sometimes has an agenda that's beyond our, our ego, meaning our sense of self or our, our conscious self. Um, we might think we're doing something, but something else is also happening. There's like parallel tracks of, um, you know, as a therapist, to, to one extent, you have to lean on your training. You have to show up and sit in your chair and do what you know to do when somebody is bringing you their story. Um, and I think that something healing and good happens in that, in that track of what we're doing consciously and what we're choosing to do. Um, but I also think that the other parallel track that a lot of therapy programs aren't looking at or considering particularly now is this idea that there's also an unconscious to who we are as humans and something in that deep unconscious is, is, is repeating itself. You know, Freud had this idea of the repetition compulsion, um, which was basically just this idea that people experience trauma in, in their life and it somehow gets buried in their unconscious, like the, and forms defense mechanisms and survival strategies and all of these things. And that those patterns tend to repeat themselves, patterns of trauma repeat themselves in current relationships. Um, and, and then like Carl Jung, who was a, a student of Freud's, said, yes, that's true. There is a repetition compulsion where trauma is being repeated. And he also proposed this idea of, um, you know, I think what he would have called it was something like the perspective function of the repetition meaning that it's not just a repetition of past trauma, it's actually a rehearsal for the future. That something in the deep psyche or soul of who we are as humans is repeating these past traumas because it's trying to work them out to a different outcome so they can be integrated and healed and um, a more expansive sense of self can emerge as, as those things get integrated into our, our ego or our sense of self and, and it grows. Um, and so I think part of the struggle for a, a lot of therapists is just this sense of like, I don't actually want to be vulnerable. I, I want to invite my clients to be vulnerable and I want them to know that they're safe in doing so and that good things can happen from that. Um, but there's two humans in the room and both have an unconscious and, and both are trying to work something out. And so while the work of therapy is exclusively focused on the client, the, the therapist has to be very attuned to like, what's getting stirred in me as I'm sitting with this person. Um, and how do I think about that in terms of what it, what the, what might have to do with the client themselves and the repetition of their past and what's trying to get worked through in this relationship. Um, the, and the problem with the repetition idea is that the unconscious is so good at creating the repetition that often the same outcomes happen, which reinforces the wound. And, you know, we double down on the defenses and the survival strategies and all of that. And so um, in most relationships, there, there isn't a, an exploration of that. There's more of a sense of, um, you know, I'm going to consciously double down and say, well, I'm never going to be in a situation like that again. And I'm going to do my best to stay away from relationships that are, are, you know, not working for me. Maybe they're toxic or abusive or just deeply unsatisfying. And that could be any type of relationship. It could be romantic. It could be uh, friendships. It could be 
how I show up at work, um, different things like that. And so um, what am I saying? I think part of what I'm saying is therapists, again, need to do their own work around uh, their own deep healing and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to call it healing as though it's something that you don't have one moment and then you do something and then you have it. And, and that's not really how I think of it. I think of this whole journey of being human is a constant unfolding and we never fully have access to the unconscious. And so something's always wanting to emerge. And so there's a vulnerability in saying, I'm never going to have it fully figured out but I'm committed to showing up and seeing what happens. Um, there's a, there's a great book by a relational psychoanalyst. Um, well, it's, it was written by a woman. She's also a relational psychoanalyst her name's Galit Atlas. Um, but it was about her partner, Lou Aaron, who, um, passed away a couple of years ago, but was a brilliant mind in the realm of relational psychoanalysis. Um, let me find this book. I'm going to read you this little snippet that kind of sure. kicked me in the face the other day. So the name of the book is called When Minds Meet, and it's um, a publication of a bunch of articles that Lou Aaron wrote, but weren't published while he was still alive. And so she compiled these unpublished works and put them into this book. Um, and one of the, one of the writings, let's see, this one is called patient's experience of subjectivity. And Lou Aaron wrote, I believe that people who are drawn to analysis as a profession have particularly strong conflicts regarding their desire to be known by another. That is conflicts concerning intimacy. Why else would people choose a profession in which they spend their lives listening and looking into the lives of others while they themselves remain relatively silent and hidden? The recognition that analysts, even those who attempt to be anonymous, are never invisible, and furthermore, the insight that patients seek to know their analysts, raise profound anxieties for analysts who are struggling with their own longings to be known and their defensive temptations to hide. And so I you know, I mean that just like, like, thank you for that. A, yeah. <laughs> like a kick in the face. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that for a little while. Uh, <laughs> uh, so one, um, thank you for yet another book that I now need to read. Um, <laughs> uh, well, at the same time, you know, I want to, oh, so much there. I want to, you know, come back a little bit and kind of it's interesting hearing the framing from different therapeutic uh, uh, theories as to how this process works and often finding the overlap with other theories. And I mean, there are some that blatantly they will contradict one another. And so you kind of have to parse through that and, and see how this is actually going to work in practice. Um, but at the same time, even old theories, I mean, you mentioned Freud, which in many circles be like, really, why, why, why are we discussing, you know, this sex focused, uh, you know, you know, cocaine addict who, you know, it's like, why bother anymore? This is some old guy from, you know, before let's, you know, stick with the modern and didn't we already know that all of his ideas are, have been, you know, uh, destroyed or dismissed. And you're like, Hmm, 
maybe <laughs> some of them. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, the structure of it, the need the to understand the human experience is still there. And even at times looking through ideas that seemingly are or have been dismissed, we will find nuggets of, I guess, to use the same, you know, phrasing you were doing before of repetition. Like mm -hmm. there aren't new ideas quite often. You know, there are, um, you know, projective rehearsals of how we like to see one another and how we relate to one another. And so some of the things of, you know, here is, you know, how we look at ourselves and here are the process uh, through which we're trying to basically come together to address future issues and the journey that we, albeit tentatively, um, see ourselves walking. So um, to, you know, bring it into a kind of, uh, so, you know, I work from a acceptance commitment therapy background with a lot of narrative work. Uh, the relational psychodynamic stuff uh, is definitely all in there as well. Um, I think I and you and like probably most therapists were initially drawn to Freud and Jung and so on. And um, some stick with it and some kind of move on. Um, but there's always that piece uh, that sticks with us. And so, but in a nutshell, it's almost like however which way you describe the process, we have this initial um, part that says, how am I going to deal with what's coming? Mm -hmm. And then there's the question of, well, what is allowing me to see or blinding me to seeing what is coming? What are the obstacles in front of me? What do I have to deal with? And then when they do come, how do I deal with it? What are the tools that I have from this previous process that allow me to deal with now what's in front of my face hmm. and where the, the therapy comes in is in figuring out to varying degrees of where the therapist is and um, how uh, the therapist and the client work together on this is an emphasis on, do you spend most of the time figuring out that, you know, historical process? Do you try to, uh, you know, or do you spend a lot of time looking at what is going on in the so-called present? Uh, or are you then spending a lot of time working on developing tools for meeting, you know, future problems? And I think possibly those three sections, like really I think encapsulate um, the three main modalities that a lot of therapists will, will gravitate themselves to and, mm -hmm. and what they emphasize will then allow them to, um, say, or rather allows the wrong word, but, um, will define for them the nature of their practice. Mm -hmm. And so, and with that, there's always that kind of overarching thing of, wait, 
we inevitably want to go towards what is easier and we avoid difficulty. And if that's true in clients and all of our clients are human therapists also contrary to, you know, uh, some episodes out of Dr. Who or whatnot, the therapist itself <laughs> is also human. So, um, we're still struggling with very much the same, you know, issues in the same process mm -hmm. and the same, um, at least general journeys that our clients are on. And yes. so, which brings then all the way back to that, you know, the quote that you shared of the vulnerability, mm -hmm. the need for recognizing, okay, wait a minute. I got into this profession because either one at some level I wanted to be seen or perhaps I don't want to be. And therefore, I'm going to use the profession as a kind of um, professional blind mm -hmm. between yeah. me and the client. So I don't have to deal with what is coming up. I can retreat behind it and say, this is about you and not about me. Mm -hmm. And that tendency, which we often identify in our clients <laughs> mm -hmm. is then what we ourselves are doing and what I'm hearing and complete agreement is in being honest about that, taking the time to address the things that we're not wanting to look at, even to a degree in the session itself. Mm -hmm. you know, we would walk that fine line of you know, treating the, the session as our own. Um, and you know, you, you, there's that line of, of oversharing, but at the mm -hmm. same time, by not acknowledging the reality of our own movement, our own work being done in the session, we're doing a disservice definitely to ourselves, but then as well to our clients by not modeling what we're encouraging them to do. A hundred percent. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. That, I think that's you, you're hitting it on the head for me. Um, you know, I, to rewind a little bit, like you were talking about Freud and like the uh, sort of impulse that newer therapies have now to like throw Freud out and be like, Oh, he's just an old cocaine addict. And why, why should we listen to anything he has to say? Um, to go back to something Lou Aaron said, who I, who authored that passage I just read, um, I saw him on a, it was like a YouTube interview and he was talking about Freud and he said that people get in this debate about whether Freud was right or wrong. And he's like, that's the wrong question. And he said something to the effect of like, the only thing that is left of Freud now are his mistakes because everything else he was about got so deeply integrated into the collective psyche that we don't even recognize him in it anymore. Um, and so you, you talk about um, these newer therapies that emerge and are, are cutting edge in some ways. And I'm a huge fan of continuing to evolve and learn and like, you know, new, new science is like the way neuroscience is coming into our field now. And, and, and really showing like there is a deep connection between the mind and the body and what's going on and all of that. And like 
for me personally, like I love innovation, but I also love orthodoxy. Like I, I want both of those. Mm-hmm. And so to look at the, the history, like over a hundred years ago, Freud was talking about the connection between the mind and the body. And, and Freud himself coined the term trauma in terms of um, making it in or like coined it into like mental and emotional realm from just the physical realm where the word trauma existed previously. Um, and so now we have all these emerging therapies that are saying, well, this is a trauma informed therapy. And well, what does that even mean? Cause like it was always trauma informed from the very beginning. Um, and sure there's like specialty trainings on how to deal with particular traumas in a particular way. And, and I think that's what they're, what they're getting at, but I don't know. I was just really struck by, by that idea that what, what's getting thrown out from Freud are his mistakes, um, and a failure to see like, and there's a lot that, that he contributed that we're still arguing about today. And that's still in the, in the soil of these emerging therapies today. Like it's still there. Um, and you know, you said there's no, there's nothing new being developed. Like everything's sort of an evolution of something. Um, I've been reading this book. So this is just really going to cue you off to how nerdy I am about this, but (laughs) bring it, bring, bring on (laughs) the nerdiness. uh, We're good. (laughs) <laughs> it's a, it's a book that's like a compilation of the letters written back and forth between Freud and Jung in the early days. So Jung was like 20 years younger than Freud and was this new student. And it's interesting to think about the context that that emerged in, because at the time it was brand new, like it was a, a new theory. And to think of even Freud himself was a marginalized Jew in the barely pre-World War II world. Um, And to the point that at the end of his life, he had to flee from Austria to England because the Nazis were beginning to invade. And um, so you think of this in terms of like psychoanalysis emerged from the margins. It wasn't taken seriously by the medical community. It wasn't taken seriously because he was Jewish. Um, and, and so he was up against a lot of opposition right from the beginning. And so you can kind of feel the energy between Freud and Jung as they're talking about these new ideas and how do we hold on to a vision for the future? Because this is going to outlive both of us. And even the idea of like Freud being Jewish while he wasn't religious in any way to, to have Judaism in his background would have had this idea of the idea of midrash and arguing ideas and that our ideas need to be argued so that something third can emerge or something new can unfold from, from the heat of the argument. Um, and so it's interesting to think about how he, he gets criticized for being rigid and excommunicating people that didn't agree with him and, and all of these things. But if you, again, take the context into consideration that there wasn't a stake in the ground yet. And so part of what he knew he was doing on some level was like, I have to put a very solid stake in the ground, like deeply into the ground so that there's something to be argued with in the future. And he, he did that and we're still arguing about it. And it's like he and Jung argued about it towards the end of their relationship. And then things emerged. And then you have the emergence of newer theories back then, like it went from classical psychoanalysis. And then there was like the emergence of object relations theory and self psychology. And then in the 1980s is when relational psychoanalysis kind of came onto the scene. And, 
and it's just continued to evolve and emerge. And, and now even relational psychoanalysis is taking a serious look at uh, interpersonal neurobiology and um, the way that our, our nervous systems work and co-regulate one another. And, um, and so all of that to say, I don't know exactly know where I'm going with that, but it, it's just, uh, it's really fun for me to look at the history and the trajectory and, and to think about it in, in its larger context that way, because I think it, it's important. And so, yeah, and it's, uh, it's still evolving. It's still being argued. And, um, you know, again, like there's nothing new under the sun in that way, but uh, it required there being a stake placed into the ground that could be argued with. And, and I think that's what Freud succeeded at. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'm, again, you know, so many, so many things of the process of good and healthy therapy here, you know, looks at the whole person, you know, and, mm. and by whole person is not meant merely what's in front of you, but their history, uh, their, you know, family, their cultural context, the ideas that they have taken in, uh, both unconsciously or pre-consciously, that's a whole other topic. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, also the ideas that they explicitly express that they adhere to and taking that systematic way of looking at a person and applying it universally, you know, looking back at, you know, Freud and other thinkers and going, this wasn't just, you know, this, this caricature, you know, this, it, this was a person in a, in a particular historical context uh, with a number of relationships that fed into and um, helped guide the, the, his own journey in what was being done um, in this development of, of himself and in his own ideas. And you think there is a tendency, frankly, just a human tendency <laughs> to, and this may touch on the whole, we like going towards easy and we avoid the difficult of mm -hmm. <laughs> seeing somebody through in a, a singular lens mm -hmm. and going, nope, I get you. I see, you know, X and therefore I don't need to ask anything else. Like the whole of who you are is just nope, right there. And I don't need to explore any further. Like I, I, I now ever know everything I need to know about you. And the reality is, is that um, each of us is so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Each of us has all of these things, histories and circles of influence that go beyond us uh, that um, to really understand where a person, who a person is, you need to take some time to explore that. Mm -hmm. And in there's something here with the putting the stake in the ground of that may in fact kind of tie all of this, everything we've been talking about here for the last little bit, you know, come full circle in the sense of Freud himself wanting to be seen, mm -hmm. wanting to know that when he developed his idea that he understood, wait a minute, 
this is something that is going to be talked about later. Mm -hmm. That the thing I'm creating, I want to do so in a way that even after I am gone, that there is a weight, there's a mm -hmm. substance to it that people won't easily dismiss. That I took mm -hmm. the time to build it to a degree that it cannot just simply be knocked over and, uh, and tread over that it's going to be something that is indelibly connected to the human experience and by, you know, and, and therefore will be something that people are going to be struggling with and hopefully evolving, but we'll still need to reference, you know, that initial stake in the ground, which just yeah. seems to resonate back to that whole, like all of us wanting to be seen, all of us wanting to have something that, <laughs> to quote one of my favorite movies, uh, echoes into eternity, you know, mm -hmm. that, that affects because part of being seen is noting what we do affecting the situations and people around us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. And like when you're talking about Freud's humanity of he was a human who wanted to be seen um, and now he's become a caricature that we just easily throw out. Um, I, you know, reading those old letters, it's so what comes through the pages more than anything is the humanity of, um, you know, there's even like a moment where I, I don't remember, I read this like maybe a couple of weeks ago, but something where he's saying to Jung, he's like, um, people tend to respond to me in a peculiar way, whereas they welcome you with open arms. And so he was basically saying like he, what he feels, you know, and, and that there's, he knows the world is, is taking him at, at a, in a way that maybe he wouldn't prefer. And he can see in Jung, like the world's responding better to you in certain ways. And so it's, it's so beautiful to me that you're in the mix of this with me and that we're, we're doing this thing. And, and multiple times through the letters, you know, both of them would talk about this idea of like, this is going to exist far beyond us. And so, I mean, what a fascinating experience to have as a human where you, you know, on some level, you don't know how it's going to evolve beyond you, but you know, it's going to. Mm -hmm. And so you're really committed to, you know, again, that idea of putting the stake in the ground, not because it's a hundred percent accurate or right, but because there needs to be um, some sort of baseline to jump off from. And, and so to, to see, to have a vision beyond yourself into an unknown future in many ways and to, and to commit to that and, and put it out there is just, I don't know, really inspiring and kind of just remarkable to me. Very much so. Well, and then can't help but see that as its own kind of macrocosm or whatever way perspective you want to take it, you know, of therapy, you know, process itself. It's like everybody coming into the office, which is also ourselves. Um, and it could be a physical or a virtual office. It doesn't matter. There's the space that is being built and everybody's coming in to go, what am I doing that is going to echo? What are the consequences good, bad, and different 
that are going to happen based on what I've done in the past, what I am doing now, and trying our best to predict what uh, those consequences are going to be. And so they're coming in going, please, like, help me see what is happening next. And like you, you mentioned there, you know, with Freud and Young, like they didn't know. And frankly, none of us know exactly how things are going to evolve after us. And there are, you know, second and third orders of, I mean, we just start getting into exponential growth here of effects and mm-hmm. in, in ripples. Mm-hmm. And, but the, but acknowledging that process, acknowledging that limitation mm-hmm. allows us to, coming back to one of the first things we talked about, that humility mm-hmm. of, you know, I don't know. And yet we will continue to ask the questions and hopefully evolve even better questions mm-hmm. to hopefully open up yet another window into seeing more clearly how what we do now is going to bring about our hoped for futures. And in doing so, we become, frankly, the best version of ourselves we know to be at any given moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yep. And like that idea of putting a stake in the ground to come to fast forward to like, working in a in a relational psychodynamic way um, and the vulnerability that it requires to for the therapist to fully show up in the room um, a, a lot of therapists uh, you know they rely heavily on a technique or a tool because they're the feeling is like i've got to be right and there's a problem and it needs a solution and i've got to be right about that um, and i think what I, if I could just like flip a switch and 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 offer something to all therapists, it would be something like let go of the idea that you need to be right. Like what needs to happen is you need to be present, um, and that that involves putting your stake in the ground, holding on to your essential self in the therapy. Meaning, um, and, and the stake in the ground is like how do I vulnerably bring my experience of the of the client to the client because something's being repeated from their past and is trying to get worked out and i'm not going to bring it as a proclamation of what's true about them or an interpretation of what's true about them i'm going to actually own it as my own experience as an ingredient in the stew that we're making together and so i'm gonna you know through my mentor roy barsness who i i teach with in this relationally focused psychodynamic therapy program um, often says like, you're, you're bringing yourself to the, to your client so that they can work it with you. Like not because you're right. It is this idea of like, you're going to, you have to hold on to yourself so that there's something that can be worked, um, with between you and the client. And so you may have an experience of the client and then you share that and they then have to interact with that and bring their authentic experience of what you've just shared into the mix now. And then when the two things mix together again, something third emerges like, oh, okay. And then there's some, sometimes some new insights into like, we're, we're now enacting the old pattern of 
your life that has never worked in the past for you. Like you're coming to me and asking me how to live my life and give me, you want me to give you all of these tools and advice so that you can improve these things. And I give them to you and you're doing them and we both feel good about it. But what we're not noticing is that there's a way in which I've now become your authoritarian father who you knew early in childhood, like you had to do the right things in order to get approval and love from him. And now we're enacting that dynamic here where um, I feel good, you feel good because you're being really obedient to all the things I'm giving you. And that's actually the thing we need to talk about um, because there's still a wound in there that is trying to work itself out in the encounter that we're having right now that on one level, you, you, I mean, you could just stay on the level of um, tools and advice and homework and these things that on some level on their own have some merit and they can be helpful, um, but they're not getting to the core wound necessarily. And the core wound might be in the enactment that's taking place around the tools. Absolutely. Well, and there's, you know, and there, and there's the tension of, you know, you hear it often in going, are we going to get to the deep work or, mm -hmm. you know, some variation of it. And there is a, uh, a tendency and, and I'll own it myself of wanting to focus on the tools and the homework and the uh, more immediately concrete. Mm -hmm. And, and there's, not necessarily a uh, wrongness there. It's more no. of a, this is on a spectrum of growth and meeting the client within the recognition of your own process and needs mm -hmm. and things you might be wanting to approach or avoid uh, of what is going to be most helpful. What is going to help them evolve into who they hope to be uh, and address, you know, uh, those consequences again. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that what you just mentioned about, um, you know, that uh, avoidance in a good way of being right, mm -hmm. you know, it, immediately thinking of, you know, the beware of the absolutist, you know, yeah. beware, beware of the person that makes every statement, every action into a uh, cosmically moral, uh, you know, question. And mm -hmm. because it's not that morality doesn't exist, it's more that for the vast majority of us, we live in the gray areas of what is this actually doing? What, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the people around us? And what are the, what's the intersection of my own intent and how that is being taken and received? And there isn't a hard and fast, clear line there of saying, yeah, no matter what happened, what happened in the past, what your intent was, this is the only way of looking at this. Mm -hmm. It's just not true. You know, there are right. so many ways of parsing this out. And, and again, and it doesn't mean want to address the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the possible uh, criticism here of, well, you know, what does it matter? Then it's all some kind of 
you know, uh, you know, subjective, you know, ethic. It's like, no, it's not that it's just a recognition that we live in a fluid reality mm-hmm. of things that of variables that sometimes we're aware of sometimes we're not mm-hmm. and the work is in trying to become more aware of the things that we're not seeing in any given moment which requires yeah. good dialogue and yes. hopefully that is what is happening in the therapy session is good dialogue which right. means acknowledging what each is bringing in and what is being developed into that as you mentioned the the third thing you know what it, what is being birthed what is being uh coming out of you know this collaboration mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and like i think of the absolutists and the things that an absolutist is absolute about are only the things that they're conscious of, but an absolutist has an unconscious as well. And so there's still a mysterious piece around like, well, why is this the hill you're going to die on? Why are you so absolute about this one particular thing? And what's the meaning underneath that? And, and, you know, like, so it is the sense of like, it's not about rightness or wrongness or, getting a correct interpretation or anything like that. It's, you know, do what you know how to do, but also develop a, uh, some sensibility around a what else-ness, you know, this is what we're aware of, but what else is going on? What else might be here? What else can we get curious about? Um, and if we're so certain for some reason, can we be curious about the certainty itself? Why do we need the certainty? The hands. Yeah. Hands down. (laughs) How can we be, even when you're certain, how can we be curious about that certainty? I'm going to be pondering that for the rest of the day. So thank you for that. Um, My pleasure. (laughs) And you know what, on that note, um, I think we're, we're here at the end. Um, and I will, I will definitely uh, put any you know links to your own practice. And I know uh, you do a blog and a podcast yourself. So yep. um, those uh, links will be placed on it. But um, is there any you know particular place uh, that you'd like to have people you know check you out at? Um, you know, like I think what you, the things you just mentioned are probably the most easy to find me. You know, my practice website is a great spot. Um, I don't really have a website for the podcast. I do have a, an Instagram, uh, page for that. It's called why in the world. Um, and then the blog is linked to my, my practice website. So yeah. So appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. And I think this will not be the only time we chat. Um, there are many things there, particularly the intersection of psychology and theology, it was sprinkled throughout uh, much <laughs> of the ways we were talking. So um, I think that might, that might be uh, something to delve into more. So yeah, yeah be thank you. And uh, we'll talk more later. Sounds good, David. Good to see you. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Teachout and me, Brian Nixon. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation and are interested in connecting further with David, you can find him at his website, lifeweavings.com. 
Um, also be sure to check out his podcast, Humanity's Values, um, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, I also wanted to take a minute to just again, sort of plug the relationally focused psychodynamic therapy program that I teach in. Um, if you are a therapist and have some desire to dive into the deep end of the pool and explore more depth psychology oriented ways of working um, relationally with your clients, then be sure to check that out. I will link to that program in the show notes as well. As always, really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Until next time.